Well, we're gonna get back into the final week of our series today. Uh, many of you have asked me if we were going to have the series on CD, and we do. After the service today, uh, if anyone would like to pick up the entire series on CD to listen to again or to share with someone, it will be available at the resource table. You can have this series for a mirror, no. Uh, also, I went ahead and I have prepared a uh, series guide for you that has most of the notes and everything that we've covered in the series. It's available after the services also in the resource area. So if you'd like to stop by and pick up a book that basically covers what we've covered in the last uh, four weeks, it would be there for your taking. So we've been talking about how to make dead on decisions. And we know that this is so important because we have the freedom to make our own choices We do not necessarily have the freedom to choose our own consequences. And therefore, if we make enough bad decisions, it can overtake us and control our lives and limit the opportunities that we have. On the other hand, if we make enough good decisions, because we're going to be positive, that's what we're doing from now on, we're making good decisions, we're making dead-on decisions, it'll open up opportunities for us, and it'll give us more freedom to to have choices and opportunities and, and experiences in life. So, so far, uh, just to catch those of you up who might have missed, or maybe this is your first week in the series here, we talked about, first of all, bringing God into our decision-making process by taking the conformity test. We talked that looks like, am I conforming to God's revealed will? What has God already said about this decision that I'm making, this choice I have to make? What's the Bible say about this? More often than not, just going to the Bible, we can answer the question and see what God has said about it. Then we talked about what's God saying right now, though? What's the Holy Spirit saying right now? Am I listening to the presence of the Holy Spirit? As a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Am I conforming to godly counsel? Am I reaching out to people who will be honest with me and people who who have demonstrated spiritual maturity in their life and people who have demonstrated the ability to make sound decisions? Am I using them as a sounding board? Am I conforming to God's provision? Remember, where God guides, God provides. Am I trying to kick the doors in? Am I trying to push my way into this? Things aren't just naturally falling into place. I better stop. I better wait. I better pray. I better consider. Then we talked about the last two weeks, we split it up, talking about don'ts of dead on decision making. Number one, we said don't rush it. Some of the worst decisions we make and the ones that get us in the most trouble are those impulsive decisions we make. We just don't think them through. We don't have a plan and we just make a decision. Oftentimes they come back to haunt us. Don't ignore your gut. Again, that's listening to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Don't ignore godly advice. Don't let others decide for you. Ultimately, you have to make your own decision. It's your decision. You're the one who is either going to reap the benefits of your decision or you're going to reap the consequences of your decision. And so you need to make your decision. Follow a sound decision-making process in that. Don't get nearsighted. We saw that last week. Need to ask ourselves a question, how is this likely to play out in the long term? Not just right now, not what I want now, not what I see now, but how's it likely to play out over time? Don't outwit yourself. Don't try to manipulate circumstances and manipulate people and manipulate your own life to try to make something happen that just isn't happening. Don't sabotage yourself. Don't corner yourself in. Now, in closing out our series today, I want to look at some do's of dead-on decision-making. 
Here are some things that you should do. We know what we shouldn't do. We know we should bring God into it at the front of our decision-making process. So what things should we be careful to do? That's what I want to share with you today. You ready to go? All right, here we go. Number one, do keep the main thing, the main thing. Let me say it again. Do keep the main thing, the main thing. Dead on decision makers single out the most important consideration of the decision that they're trying to make and make that factor the driving factor in the decision that they make. They get all the clutter out. And they say, okay, what is the single most important thing going on in this decision? And we make that the driving factor. The Apostle Paul was constantly under the pressure of deciding whether or not to stop this ministry he was doing for Christ and and even to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. If you really look at the life of Paul as you read through the New Testament, his was an arduous life. It was a tough life. I mean, he was routinely imprisoned. He was routinely beaten for the cause of Christ. Uh, He was stoned once and left for, for dead. I mean, his life for Christ, that's why later on he says, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. Because this Christian experience for him was not a comfortable experience at all. And so he was, I'm sure, often, as he's in prison, just having a beaten and in chains, thinking to himself, what am I doing? And I'm sure Satan tried to tempt him to renounce his, his faith in Christ or to renounce this ministry he was doing. But over and over again, Paul survived his extreme hardships because he always kept the main thing, the main thing. Now, what was that to Paul? Well, in Philippians chapter 1, and by the way, Paul is once again in prison. He says this in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So in other words, being in prison, being under arrest, having my freedom taken away, being at the threat of death right now, of execution. He says, it has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, even the, the Romans, even, even those who were, who were, who were um, his, his captors, uh, that in everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. He says, because of my chains... Because I'm in prison, brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. He said, because of my condition, the gospel's not being oppressed, it's not being silenced. In fact, my chains have emboldened other believers to share their faith more courageously and more fearlessly. Some said, yeah, but but not all of them are being honest about it. Some of them are doing it for their own gain. So he goes on to say, he says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. He said, but what does it matter? The important thing in every way, whether from false motives or truth, what's the most important thing? Christ is preached. The gospel is going out. And he concludes this thought by saying this, and because of this, I rejoice. Even though I'm in chains, even though I've had my freedom taken away, even though I'm living under the constant threat of execution 
for my faith. I rejoice because God is using it all to spread the gospel, to spread the good news that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. See, Paul kept the main thing, the main thing. Before surrendering to his death on the cross, Jesus kept the main thing, the main thing. Jesus reminded his immediate disciples that he had a choice in this. In John 10, 18, Jesus said to his disciples, no one takes it from me, his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. He said, I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. In other words, Jesus said, I, I have a choice. Now, we know that right after Jesus celebrated his last Passover in the upper room with his disciples, they left and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was going there to pray. That's where he was going to be betrayed. Jesus knew that. And so he got there with his 11 remaining disciples, because remember, by this time, Judas had already left them because he was going to, to, to act out the betrayal. He was going to get the guard to go arrest Jesus. And they got to the garden, and Jesus took, took eight of his disciples, and he said, you guys stay here and pray. Then he took Peter, James, and John, his inner circle of disciples, a little bit further. And he says this to them in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 38. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. See, here we see the humanity of Jesus. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And, and, and he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Scripture reveals that while he was praying in the garden, his stress was so high that he began to sweat blood. And medical science tells us that is a possibility. When, when anxiety and stress is so high, capillaries begin to burst under the skin and blood can seep through the pores. So Jesus says, watch and pray with me. And he says, going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Jesus said, God, is there any other way? And yet, he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now remember, he did this three times. Three times he prayed this to his father. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Remember, the cup he's talking about is the one that he just shared with his disciples in the upper room that we celebrate in communion. The cup that was the new covenant that was gained through the blood sacrifice of Jesus. And Jesus knows that's what is about to happen. But yet each time, what did Jesus say? Yet not as I will, but as you will, Father. See, Jesus kept the main thing the main thing. It wasn't his suffering. It wasn't his sorrow. The main thing was he had come into the world to seek and to save that who were lost. And now when it came down to the most critical point, to the crisis point, he was able to go to the cross only because he kept the main thing the main thing. That's what dead-on decision makers do. They're able to single out the most important consideration and make their decision, make that factor the driving factor 
of their decision-making process. For example, in order to advance my career, I need to get my MBA. Somebody might be in that situation. They're in business and the same, really for me to get ahead for me to get better pay, for me to have a, a position of, uh, of more responsibility, more opportunity, I need to get my MBA. So we start looking around and we start saying, boy, now where's one of the schools that has one of the best MBAs? Well, the Harvard Law School. That's a great law school, or, or business school. Let me go to business school and get my MBA at Harvard. But we, we apply and we don't get accepted. Well, the Wharton School of Business, that's a good one too. Let me, and we don't get accepted at the Wharton School of Business. Well, I guess it's just not in the cards to get my MBA. See, now, someone who is in that situation is not keeping the main thing the main thing. The main thing is what? Getting the MBA. Where they get the MBA is a consideration, but is it the driving factor? No, not getting the MBA is going to limit their promotional opportunities, to limit their, their, their ability to, to, to make more money. We want to get out of debt so we can buy a house, a couple might say. We don't want to rent anymore. We want to buy a house. We want the American dream. And so we need to get out of debt because we have got a, our debt ratio is out of whack and we can't get a mortgage. But then comes the summertime and say, <clears throat> we haven't had a vacation in a long time. Now, we don't have the money to do a vacation, but I've got this little neat thing here in my wall. It's called Visa. It's called MasterCard. And, you know, we've been working hard, haven't we? And, and we, we, need, we deserve this vacation. So charge a vacation onto a credit card. Now, in that case, they're not keeping the main thing the main thing, right? Are they going to be putting themselves, are they going to be advance their ability to get a mortgage by charging up more on their credit card? No, it's the exact opposite thing. They're not keeping the main thing the main thing. Do you want to get out of debt? If that's the main thing, then you've got to filter out everything that is going to prohibit you from getting out of debt. You're going to need to look and see what sacrifices that need to be made. I want to find a godly spouse so I can build a godly family. And so many believers, single believers, feel that way. I want a godly spouse. I want a godly family. All right, so that's the main thing, right? So where are you going to find a godly spouse? In the nightclubs down at South Beach? Huh? Is that where you're going to find? You know, where are you going to find them? Listen, you're not going to catch a largemouth bass in the ocean. You got to go fishing where the fish are, right? If you want a godly spouse, then you have to rearrange the circumstances of your life, and that might include rearranging your relationships, because if you're running with an unbelieving crowd, and they're always wanting you to go to, to places that, that believers shouldn't be, and, and that's what you're doing, you're not keeping the main thing the main thing. And what's going to happen is you'll get out there in, in the world, and, and you'll get attracted to someone, someone will get attracted to you who's an unbeliever, and then you're going to violate the very first principle of Dead on decision-making, which in the conformity test is, am I conforming to God's revealed will? And God's revealed will about unbelievers marrying believers or believers marrying unbelievers is what? Don't do it. See? You got to make the main things. Don't let less important decisions knock you off track. Second, 
Do be true to yourself. Now, we kind of touched on this, but, but I want to touch on it again. Do be true to yourself. Romans 12.3 says this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Paul is speaking now, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. What Paul's saying here is take a reality check. Don't think more of yourself than, than you ought. He says, think of yourself with sober judgment. In other words, be true to yourself. And here's a way to do this. Write this down. I don't think it's in the note, but write it down. Identify the top three unflattering truths about yourself and plug them into your decision-making process. All of us, take a reality check. List the three most unflattering things about who you really are and how you tend to respond and plug those into your decision-making process. I, I said last week, if you know that you're basically lazy, you're not really a self-starter, you're not really a self-motivator, then you don't want to become a business entrepreneur because that's going to take an enormous amount of energy, an enormous amount of, of self-discipline, enormous amount of perseverance. That is going to be one of the hardest things you ever try to do. And if your natural tendency is, I don't really like to work, I just work because i got to make some money to pay my bills. If that's really who you are, you don't want anywhere near this. Because it's going to be a disaster. I'm not a detail person. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a broad thinking person. I'm not, I don't, don't become an accountant. You know what I'm saying? Don't take on some trade or don't pursue some trade where detail is especially important as with an accountant. I don't want you to be my brain surgeon if you're not a detail person. You know, we just got to be true to ourselves. I'm a couch potato. Don't marry a socialite. I like to just sit home and I like my quiet little area. I like my, my, my easy chair. I like to watch some TV. I like to read a book. I, I, don't, I don't need parties. I don't need. And then you marry a socialite, and the oxygen they breathe is other people, is being out doing things. And you know what will happen? is if you're the couch potato, during the courtship process, you'll go out and you'll party and you'll do all that kind of thing because in our courtship process, we're always trying to what? We're trying to win the other person's affection. We're trying to win their commitment to our, their relationship. But as anyone who's been married past five months knows, <laughs> that all changes, Right? And later it's on, hey, man, there's this great party going on. There's this great dinner going on. Let's go to it. I don't want to go to it. I've been working all week. I just want to stay home. And see, then we start doing this. Why? Because we, we misrepresented ourselves to ourselves. I'm afraid of water. Don't join the Navy. <laughs> I hate getting dirty. Don't join the Army or the Marine Corps. I'm terrified of flying. The Air Force isn't for you. 
You see what I'm saying? See where I'm coming from? Do be true to yourself. Now, think of the three most unflattering things about you. It could be laziness. It could be you're not a detail person. It could be that you're a couch potato. You're, you're not socialite. You're an introvert. Whatever it is, identify those and plug those into your decision-making process. It'll save you a world of hurt, of getting talked into stuff that you shouldn't do. Remember what Romans said. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Hey, identifying your unflattering characteristics does not mean you're a loser. It means you're a realist. All of us have unflattering characteristics. All of us have tendencies that are very strong in us. And we just need to be true to ourselves. We need to be honest to ourselves. We need to say these are the areas that are not going to be positive areas in certain venues of life. And we just need to plug them in to the decision we're going to make. Third, do clarify your real objective or your real objectives. Clarify what those are. Proverbs 21.5 says this. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. The plans of the diligent. One of the things this whole series is about is giving you a strategy by which you can make dead-on decisions. Giving you a template to follow in your decision-making process, especially those really big decisions that you make that can be very consequential. So, the diligent, has a, they have a plan. They know what they want. They really know what their objective or their objectives are. Write this down if you're taking notes. When you're making a decision and trying to clarify your objective or your objectives, ask yourself this question. I need or I want a blank that blanks. I want a blank that blanks. You say, what are you talking about? Let me show you. Let's go back to our car. We've used that a lot. You're going to buy a car. Okay, I want to buy a car. All right. I need to buy a car. Mine's falling apart and I'm putting more money in it than, than it's worth keeping. And, and, and that happens. Ultimately, we all have to get a new car. But as you decide about your car, already keeping all these other things we've learned, the don'ts and all that in mind, ask yourself, clarify what car you want. I want a car that gets at least 25 miles per gallon in town. Maybe that's one of the things because you're going to be doing a lot of driving. You're a salesperson and you're going to be in that car and driving around a lot. And, and gasoline fluctuates and gasoline gets expensive. So that's an important consideration to you. I want a car that can carry at least four people comfortably. You know, what, what, what kind of passenger? I, I've got a family. I've got, I, I've got a wife and I've got three kids. Then do I really need a car or do I need a van? You know, what objectives? I want a car that has reasonable insurance premiums. We know that some, some cars, some models of cars, the insurance goes through the roof on them because they're most typically stolen or vandalized or, or maybe they, they don't do well in crashes on the other end of the spectrum. So what we're saying is I want to clarify 
my objectives in a car that I'm buying. I want a job that what? I just tired of this job. I just want any old job. No, you don't. Because you may jump from the pan to the fire. What do you want a job? What characteristics do you want in a job? What are you pursuing? I want a job that pays more money. Okay. I want a job that has benefits. Okay. Maybe I want a job that, that has some flexibility between working only in the office and working at home. Because maybe you have some life issues that demand that. So when, when you're looking for a job, don't just look for a job in desperation. Take the first thing that happens. Clarify what your objectives are. What do you need in this job? What are you looking for from this job? Now, will you necessarily be able to find a job that satisfies every one of them? No, but you'll be able to find a job that will satisfy most of them. I want a spouse. We're back to the spouse. I just want somebody to get married. Good luck with that. What are you looking for in a spouse? I want a godly spouse. Well, if you're a believer, of course you should want a godly spouse. But if men, you're looking for, for a, a, a wife. Well, what characteristics do you want in that person? I, I, I want a spouse who wants to have children. Big, big deal, right? Because not all spouses want to have kids. So I want one who wants to have kids. I want one who wants to have five kids. You know, if that's what you want, if that's what you're looking for, that's your plan. You know, or whatever it is. Ladies, you're looking for a husband. I want a spouse who will take care of the finances in our home because I'm really bad with them. I want a spouse, whatever they are. There, there, there could be all kinds of things. But the point is, before you just rush out there into any decision, make sure that you clarify what your objectives are. I want a credit card, that what? You know, what do you want your credit card to do for you? There's all kinds of different credit cards. I want a credit card with low interest. Well, that'll depend on the decisions you've made financially before. I want a credit card that gives me unlimited points. Not just for air, but, but for this, this, and that, you know, or whatever it is. But do your homework. Research, what are the best cards? Why are the, this card the best card in this situation? I want a house that. What do you want in a house? See, in every decision that we make, we can sit down and clarify our real objectives. That's going to help us resist making impulsive decisions. And it's going to help us to not settle for something we really don't want or we really don't need and we are later going to regret. Whether it be a material object, maybe it be in a relationship, maybe it be in a job, whatever it is. Clarifying our objectives will help us to make more dead-on decisions. Now, after that, number four is do do your research. Do do your research. Remember we talked about one of the things that don't rush into, don't make an impulsive decision, and especially don't fall for these sales things. This is, well, I'm sorry, but I can only offer you this opportunity today. I can't come back. It won't be here tomorrow. The manager said you got to take it today or, or we can't offer it to you. Well, you know, don't fall for that stuff. Trust me, they want to sell things, and they want you to buy things or, or whatever. Proverbs 13, 16 says, every prudent man acts out of what? 
Out of what? Knowledge. Knowledge. But a fool exposes his folly. And the inference is by not doing his research, not doing her research. Do, do your research. If it's buying a car, research everything you can about where the best place to buy the car is. There's all kinds of things on the internet now that you can use to ascertain whether a car's been in an accident, if you get the VIN number of that car, because you're not buying that car on impulse, to, to know where that car has sold and what it's sold for, so that you don't end up getting a bad deal when you could have got it for a lot less somewhere else. See, do your research. Do your research in a spouse. Don't fall in love overnight. You know, do a little research. Find out. What is this person likely to be like? What's his father like? What's her mother like? That's sometimes an indicator because we are conditioned in our family environment. Five, do, and this is really big, do exaggerate. Say it with me exaggerate all possible consequences. When you make a decision, you are tipping a domino. And like we, we, we see with those, those domino formations, once that starts falling, then all these dominoes just start falling. When I make a decision, I need to exaggerate all the possible consequences that can come from the choice I'm going to make. Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 28 through 30, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? All right, now that goes back to what we've talked about previously. Because he says, for if he lays the foundation, is not able to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not even able to finish. What an idiot. Now, in this case, Jesus talks about our social reputation, which in this case is linked to our financial responsibility. Jesus said, what idiot goes out to build a house and doesn't sit down and do his research, doesn't sit down and clarify his true objectives, but just starts building and then finds out he doesn't have near enough money to finish. And now everyone, all his neighbors, he said, hey, I'm building a house. To, all, all the people at work, well, I had to stop because I didn't have enough money. Are you an idiot? See, you've got to consider all the possible consequences. Where's this going to go? What could happen? If it works out, what are the consequences? If it doesn't work out, what are the consequences? And I say exaggerate them. Because it's real easy for us to say, oh, that, 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 it could happen, but probably won't happen. How many times have we said that, right? And, and that or worse happened. So we, we need to exaggerate them. We saw last week in David's life, he got nearsighted. He didn't ask the question, how is this likely to play out in the long run? And it led him down a horrible, horrible path. Six. Do investigate all alternatives. What other choice? What other job? What other car? What other relationship? What are my alternatives here? And that same passage that we looked at about building, Jesus goes on to say in Luke 14, verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. 
Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? King says, okay, no, 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 no. My army might be superior fighters. We might have superior technology. And so therefore, even though we only have 10,000, we'll easily be able to fit 20,000. But on the other hand, as he's thinking it out and he's doing all these things we're talking about decision-making, he might say, well, I don't know, man, we're, we're, we're kind of even. I could win. I might not win. So what are my alternatives? Jesus goes on to say, if he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other king is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. See, he considers the consequences and he considers his alternative possibilities. King says, maybe we'll win, but what if we don't? Remember, exaggerate the consequences. Maybe we're strong enough. Our guys are pretty tough. We got a lot of cool stuff, but what if we don't? So, One alternative is, well, before we go to battle, before anybody gets killed, before they even get into our area, let me send a peace delegation. Let's see if we can't settle our differences here without going to war. Now, see, some kings would think, you know what? Bring it on, buddy, because of their pride. But pride comes before a what? A fall, see? So consider what your alternatives are. I really want that, 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 that Ford, I don't know, pickup trucks. What's the best one? 250 or whatever they are. I want that truck. Okay, but maybe that truck is like way out of your ballpark. But maybe you can get the Chevy instead. See, consider your alternatives. Investigate them. Take time to do that. Finally, do make a decision. Make a decision. Many people totally mess up their lives because they get paralyzed somewhere in the decision-making process. And so they just don't ever make a decision. I told you I, I, I had a sister come up after the, one of the services last week. I don't even remember what service it was and said, you know, my problem is that I, I just can't pull the trigger. I just can't make a decision. And my response to her was, I understand it because it's hard sometimes. But now that you have a strategy, now that you have a template to use to make dead on decisions, you should be able to overcome that paralysis. You should be able to overcome that fear because you're you're not just making an impulsive decision. You're, You're not just out there in the wind. You followed all these steps. You've done the conformity step. You've made sure that you're not getting into the don'ts of dead-on decision-making. You're making sure that you're checking off the list of the do's of dead-on decision-making. And so if you do all of that authentically, then you are in a position to make a decision. Make the decision. Even a bad decision is often better than no decision at all because at least we'll learn something from the bad decision. You just don't want to make a bunch of them. One way to become a great decision maker is to get into the practice of making sound dead on small decisions. Practice using these strategies in less consequential decisions. And if you are 
a person who tends to be paralyzed in your decision-making process. Build up your confidence by making a series of small decisions that are not really super consequential. Get in the decision-making process. As you build, like any other muscle, as you build your confidence in this strategy, in this template, in your ability to use it, then you will naturally be able to pull the trigger more confidently and with better results. But you've got to make a decision at some point. So my encouragement to you as we close out this particular series is make dead on decisions. You can do this. Dead on decision makers make dead on decisions. What did Dr. Foster say? Because they care about making dead on decisions. That's the driving force. They want to make a good choice. And so they're going to take the time that's necessary. They're going to go through the strategies. They're going to follow scripture. They're going to bring God into the process. And that's exactly what the best of dead on decision makers do. They use a systematic approach. You have a system now. You have to decide now. <laughs> You're in a decision place. Am I going to use this? I'm going to say, oh, that was interesting. What's next? And the greatest dead on decision makers invite God into the process where? At the front end, not the back end. The front end. Why? Because Romans 8.31 reminds us, what then shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? So first we have to answer the decision, is God for us? And what's the answer to that? Yes, unequivocally yes, God is for us. But we also have to join God in these decision-making processes in following scriptural mandates, in listening to the Holy Spirit, in using a sound system by which we make our most consequential decisions. So make dead-on decisions. Again, the series is available right after the service. The notes are available right after the service if you want to take them and have them as a resource. And my prayer, and I'm going to pray right now for everyone here, that we will be led by God to make dead on decisions that open up opportunity for us rather than corner us in and limit our opportunities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the guidance that you, you give us in every area of life. And Lord, I pray that as we've shared this particular decision-making template, this system that puts you at the front, God, I pray that many will make the decision now to use it. And not just to have made this an intellectual experience, but to, to make it applicable. Something that they use and, and, and they hone, they commit to memory so that it's mobile. Because so many of the decisions we have to make are on the run. Lord, help us not to be pressured into making decisions before we're really ready to. And help us not to deceive ourselves and outwit ourselves and sabotage ourselves but Lord, help us to turn to you and systematically do everything that's required to position us to be confident in the decisions we make.
Lord, use us for your glory always. In Jesus' name, amen.